Good morning, church. How you guys doing this morning? Welcome again, Desert Hills. That, that last song was an amazing song. Man, I feel like I can preach for the next hour and a half, two hours. I won't, though, because I have a pregnant wife that's about to pop, so we got to get home any minute. But uh, it's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, Pastor Adam is uh, feeling a little under the weather this morning, and so I'll be filling in for him. And so sorry to let you down like that, but he will be back here next week. He sends his regards, and he loves you all, wishes he could be here. And, uh, and, uh, but we're looking forward to a good day. I told him yesterday, I was like, look, he said he had only been sick once or twice in the past 15 years. I said, it sounds to me like you got a few rollover sick days. And so, uh, you take the, take this and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get it done. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 15 is where we'll be. And uh, looking forward to, uh, continuing on a series called reconstruction, uh, reconstructing. And we're talking about deconstruction, what it looks like when someone deconstructs their faith and how do we answer some of the questions that people have? How do we be a help to people in that way? How do we equip you as believers to deal with people? who are deconstructing their faith. And just as a, a quick little uh, a reminder, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the, the beliefs you grew up with. So that's kind of the definition of deconstructing. And you see this a, a lot more nowadays than you have in the past, or at least it's, it's more, uh, more visible nowadays with social media and all that. But uh, some may totally reject everything they once believed and uh, in, in grew up with never to return again. Some may have a period where they go away and then come back and they start to deconstruct their faith and start to work things out and try to answer questions. Then they come back to their faith later on in life. Uh, but my hope and prayer for this series is that we're able to equip you as believers and, and hopefully answer some questions and hopefully give you some tools so that you can um, help others with questions and, and help others if they are deconstructing their own faith. And uh, we want to be uh, help to you in any way that we can with this sermon series. And we need to understand that the struggle of one's faith and with one's faith is often uh, the surest sign that we actually have a faith. Having questions isn't a bad thing. Having questions is a good thing. And, and God wants us to come to him with questions. He wants us to go to his word with uh, the questions that we have. And so uh, if you have doubts, if you have questions, well, welcome to the club. Uh, that's not a sign that you're losing your faith. It's a sign that you have a faith and you're trying to work through it. And so the first week we set the table, uh, I guess literally, uh, we set the table up here talking about the subject of deconstruction. And we gave three main reasons why people deconstruct uh, their faith. Last week we talked about the first reason, and uh, that's the inability for people to reconcile the goodness of God with the pain and suffering and the loss that they uh, experience. And this week we're going to be talking about um, ethereal faith versus experiential faith. And, and what that means is we're going to be talking about how we can experience God rather than just know things about God. And I think all of us know some stuff about God. Probably some of us know lots of things about God. And the difference is, how do we experience God? How do we have a relationship with Him that's real, that's genuine, that's vibrant, that's growing, as opposed to just knowing facts and things about God? See, that's, that's the second thing we're talking about this morning. A faith that simply has seen pages of his book versus faith that has seen the pages of our hearts turned. A faith that knows things versus a faith that has seen God do things. See the difference there. A faith that moves the minds versus a faith that moves mountains. A faith that touches our mind versus a faith that touches our heart. There's a difference and this is what we're talking about. Henry Nouwen put it this way. He said, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of spiritual life. Living in the presence of God 
is the greater call of all. And now it's true that much of what we know about the Christian life is found in God's Word. It's found right here in this book. And this is detached from a religious or spiritual experience. We, we understand that when we read from Scripture, okay, we can, we can read it and understand it and learn things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual experience that goes along with it. And we're not asking you to look for the next spiritual awakening or, the, or some laughing revival or some Toronto blessing. That's not necessarily what experiential faith is. It's also true that God relates to his people in spiritual experiences. When we're saved, we have a spiritual experience. If any experience is spiritual, salvation obviously would be one of those things. The Holy Spirit illuminates us to his truth, the truth of the gospel. And in turn, he, in John chapter 16, and when he has come, just as Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here, and when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he, the Holy Spirit, will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So he convicts us of sin. He convicts us of our need for righteousness and he convicts us that our sin has been judged in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit not only guides us into the truth of the gospel, but he guides us in and towards all truth. And Jesus says it this way in John chapter 16. He says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So one of the truths he guides us into is the truth regarding our identity and salvation. Romans 8, 16, the Bible says this, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit works in us, convicting us, showing us of our need for him. And he shows us and reveals to us that we are the children of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual work he does in our hearts through us and he allows us to know and to experience God. While these are truths about the Holy Spirit, these truths are based in God's word, these truths lead us to experience real things, like conviction of sin before salvation, conviction of our need for righteousness, and that Christ was judged for us, the experience of being guided towards the truth, not only in salvation, but by reading the word and hearing the word and preaching and teaching. So there's been times, I'm sure, if you're a believer and you've professed Christ, I'm sure there's times where you've been in a service and you've heard the word of God spoken and preached and there was something inside of you that said, oh, 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 there's that, that right there that the preacher said, oh, that right there that you just heard. There's something inside you that says that needs to change or that, that, that's something that needs to be worked on in your life. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the encouragement or the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit is, is when you go through a tough time in your life and you go to God's word looking for comfort and you find it and you experience it and you know it inside of you. That is the Holy Spirit comforting you in that time when by all human standards, you shouldn't be comforted. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit in your life. And experience plays a role in our theological journey. We're not going to have an experience like Isaiah. I don't know how many of you guys know about Isaiah, but interesting story in Isaiah chapter 6. We're not going to have an, uh, uh, an experience like this, but in Isaiah 6, uh, he sees the Lord high up on his throne in the temple with the, the robe of God, his robe pouring out of the temple. It's that big. He then sees angelic creatures circling the throne, and the Bible tells us what they cried out in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 3. 
And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Their voices shake the whole place with smoke, and the the smoke is billowing out. And then we see Isaiah's response to this. Look at this, verse number five. Then said I, after he sees God high and lifted up, after he sees the, the seraphim, the angels, saying, holy, 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 he says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has an obvious experience with God. He's in the presence of God, and this leaves him feeling broken, undone. And he recognizes his need for this God. He's disrupted and shaken to the core. And it's so interesting because in Isaiah chapter 5, one chapter previous to this one, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is saying about the children of Israel, the people of Israel, he's saying, woe unto you, and woe, 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 and he's saying woe to all these different people in Isaiah chapter 5. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, woe unto me. You see how the fingers are pointed in a different direction after he sees God and experiences God. He says, this is, this is something, I, I am broken. I am the one in need, not the people of Israel. Right now in this moment, I'm the one in need. He pronounces a judgment upon himself. One author said it this way. This experience becomes Isaiah's realization that he was called as a prophet to Israel. There's no reason to believe that Isaiah did not believe in God before his experience. He held beliefs about the Lord, surely. Still, he had yet to experience the one he believed in. In Isaiah's cognitive belief, became experiential reality in one, fell swoop, in one fell swoop. No longer was God an intellectual belief. God was, a, God was a being Isaiah had seen. Experiences like Isaiah's change one's perception of God. To be sure, there are many kinds of experiences. There are what we might call elevation experiences and valley experiences. An elevation experience is one like Isaiah's. Moments of revelation, epiphany, Elation that awakens us to a deeper understanding of who God is. One could call these mountaintop experiences. On the other hand, a valley experience occurs when we walk through darkness, when we walk through brokenness, pain, loss, discomfort, and uncertainty. When we look carefully, Isaiah's experience appears to have both elements. Not only was Isaiah's vision of God enlarged, his view of himself seems to have been annihilated. This is this experience, this spiritual experience that Isaiah has from God. So how do we go from an ethereal faith, a faith where we just know things about God and know things um, about spiritual things, we have facts about the Bible, how do we go from an ethereal faith to an experiential faith? We're going to get there. But first, we've got to talk about why some people never experience God in a real way to begin with, which causes them to deconstruct. So God's desire is that all men should be saved. This is true. But not all will be saved. So point number one is some have never experienced God because they lack saving faith. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name has cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
Could it be that some who have deconstructed never had genuine faith to begin with? So why would we say such a thing? Why would we say something like that? Because those who have experienced saving faith know their relationship to the Father. They know their relationship to Jesus Christ. In our text, Jesus likens himself to a vine in a vineyard, and his father is the husbandman. He's, he's the keeper of the vineyard, and the branches that are coming off of the vine are us. They represent us. And he likens every believer as a branch that is a part of the vine. Notice the text, John chapter 15, 1. This is our text for the morning. He says, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. He's the keeper of the vineyard. Verse number two, every branch in me, that's us, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So everyone that is a part of the vine knows it because we're bearing fruit. And that doesn't mean we'll never have questions or doubts. That doesn't mean there aren't things that in our life we'll say, I, I don't know what that means. I don't understand that. I don't know why God is doing that. That doesn't mean you won't have questions or doubts. But those who have saving faith know their relationship to the Father. Jesus made it clear that we will know if we are a branch. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit bears witness with our and to our sonship. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He says, you know you have this Abba Father that you can cry out to. The Holy Spirit leads you to cry out to God in this way. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring in, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. And we have confidence, and our conscience is clear and clean because of the promise of salvation we have uh, we have claimed. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 15 and verse number 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. So those who are believers will get a clear conscience towards their relationship with the Father. They know that they are the Father's. They know that the Father is theirs. They know they have been adopted into the family of God. They know they are a son or daughter of the highest. So those who have experienced saving faith know their relationship to the Father. Those who've never experienced saving faith, the Father takes away. Deconstruction is not something new. It's been happening since the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught this, John chapter 15, verse number two. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he, the Father, the husbandman, taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. So he, the Father, allows them to be taken away. And the text goes on. Verse number six. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. So let me make it clear that, again, we have to be clear on this. God desires that all men be saved. The Bible tells us this clearly all over Scripture, but you see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4. Who will have God, who will have men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth? And then again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but long-suffering toward us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's desire is clear that all men of this thing called free will, not all will truly be born again into God's family. And maybe they're trusting in something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, and because of this, they don't last. And as our text says, they don't abide. 
Here's what Jesus said in the parable of the sower of the seed. This is a really cool story. Matthew chapter 13, look at this. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside, side of the road. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth a little while. He lasts a little bit. But when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he's offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But, but, he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So three of the four seeds had no root and as a result, no fruit. In other words, they weren't genuine. They weren't believers. I'm not saying that everyone who deconstructs lacks saving faith. They might be confused. They might have questions. They might be heartbroken. They might be disenfranchised, frankly, from churches and other believers and other ministers of the gospel. They might just be sideways for a little bit. But it would say, but I would say that if they return, the veracity of their salvation, if they do not return, the veracity of their salvation would be in question. Here's what God used John to say of believers who encountered people that deconstructed their faith. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us. They went out from us, yes, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So how do we go from, how do we go from this? How do we move forward from this? Let's put a fine point on it. Saving faith produces fruit and perseveres. Saving faith produces fruit and perseveres. Look at verse number two again. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, the Father, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So, so, so what is the evidence here that there is an experiential faith? What is the evidence here that there is a genuine faith? There is fruit in their life, and then God is able to purge that fruit so that they can bring forth more fruit. You see this spiritual growth taking place in this person's life. In the, the life of this uh, branch, there is growth happening. That is how we know. The health of the vine is directly proportionate to their pruning. A grapevine will never produce anywhere near its potential without being pruned. So I have with me this morning a strawberry plant. And we were looking for a fruit tree, but they're not in season right now, at least ones with fruit on them. And so we have a strawberry plant of strawberries. And so I'm pretty happy about this plant. I don't know who's supposed to get this, but I'm probably going to sneak it home uh, when we're done with the services today. Uh, but um, I'm just kidding. If you guys want it, you can have it. Um, or maybe we can plant it outside the church. Just kind of have this for posterity's sake. I don't know. But anyway, here we have a strawberry plant. And this strawberry plant the way that you know it's a healthy plant, you know it's alive, is because we see these little dudes right here. First, you see the blossoms, right? Pretty cool. And then you see these little budding strawberries coming out of some of these shoots. 
And this is the evidence that it's growing. Now, I have some fruit trees in my backyard that me and my wife planted uh, last year. And I'll tell you what, none of them have fruit growing on those things. And there was a time when I thought we were going to lose almost all of them. Luckily, some of them made a comeback, but they, they deconstructed and then they came back to the faith. And then, <laughs> but, but they have, but they're growing now. And so, but uh, I thought we were going to lose our pomegranate tree, but the pomegranate tree came back. And so I'm really happy about that. But this is the evidence of a believer that's had an experience with God that's real is there's fruit that's coming out of their life. If you had a fruit tree and you had that for 10, 15 years and it never produced one piece of fruit, you would think, I need to do something with this. It's obviously not growing. Something's wrong. Something is wrong somewhere with this fruit tree. I'm going to get rid of it because it's not producing fruit and I'm going to get a tree that does produce fruit. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. And Jesus is using the same analogy here. He's saying if there's no fruit, well, then there's, not a, there's, there's something wrong. There's not health. It's not alive. And so what does God do when there is growth in our life? And this is the part that hurts in the Christian life. When there is growth and there is fruit and there is uh, parts of our life that we can see that there is steps being made forward, God takes the, the pruning scissors and he prunes us. He purges us. And many times we, we can, I'm sure there's all stories that we could all tell where God is purging our life. God's taking things away. He's putting things in our life that hurt at the moment. He allowed us to go through some circumstance, some heartache, something, and it hurt at the moment. But at the end of, the, at the end of it, at the other side of it, we were better off because of it. You see this in Psalm chapter 119, verse number 67. I love these verses. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Okay, before I was afflicted, before I was put into trials and, and, and tribulations, I, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Did you catch that? My brethren, James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, God, see how God uses the pruning and purging in our life. And it's evidence to us that we are a child of God. When things are, are taking place in our life where God's purging us, it's evidence that God is working on our life. It's evidence that we're a child of God. God's hand is always close when he prunes the branches of the vines. At times when the pruning seems most extreme, he may seem to have departed, but he is closer than ever. The pruning he allows may pain us, but it will never harm us. See, the branch does not bear fruit for itself, but for others. This is the other cool thing about when God purges us, when God prunes us, and God allows us to see spiritual growth. The fruit that we produce isn't just for ourselves; It's for others. It's for the world. The life that has been trimmed by the hand of God encourages and sustains others. You see this, John chapter 15, verse number two. Uh, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. So we see, we know if we're a child of God. Those who are saved will abide. Those who are saved will gather all their strength and satisfaction from their relationship with Jesus. He says this in verse number four, John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, 
and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You see, this little strawberry, this little strawberry, these little budding strawberries cannot sustain life without, and this, this little branch here cannot sustain life without being attached to this bigger, bigger branch, a bigger vine. If this was not here, this would not exist. And the same thing in our life as believers. Yes, we're a branch that's coming off of the vine, but we need to abide in Jesus Christ. That's where the fruit, that's where our life, that's where our growth, that's where our satisfaction comes from, in abiding in Jesus Christ. And many believers are so confused and they're doubting and they don't have, and it's because they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's growing. They're not attached to that vine. Saved people will continue in the faith. They won't be perfect. They won't be without faults that may even be inconsistent at times. But they will continue. They'll persevere in their faith. Those who have saving faith will produce fruit. Now, some, may, some Christians may be 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and have never produced a great amount of fruit. They are Christians, but they have not abided, getting all their strength and satisfaction from the vine. They've lived their lives in their own strength. They've gotten, as Pastor Adam says, crunchier in, uh, as they've gotten older. Why? Because they've learned to do things on their own. The fruit of the Spirit is not always present. You say, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So here in our text, Jesus mentions specific fruit, first of which is, an empowered prayer life. Believers will have an empowered prayer life. Look at John 15, 7. If ye abide in me, and my word abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, God's answer might be yes or no. God's not some, some genie that we can rub, and when we want something, he's going to give it to us. He's not obliged to give us what we want. He does uh, what he does. Uh, what he does do is give himself. He gives us strength, perspective, hope, comfort, in the highest and lowest of times, but he's not a genie that gives us what we want. If you study prayer out in the context of the Bible as a whole, you'll see the greatest benefit of prayer is not getting things, but spending time with an almighty God. See, Philippians chapter four, verse number six, it says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, one of the reasons people get disillusioned from God is that they are told and believe that God is obliged to give them whatever they want in prayer and name it or claim it. Here's what one author says. If God can heal anyone at any time, why aren't more people healed? Is God stingy? People pray asking for healing much more often than God seems to answer. Does God play favorites? And is God's favorites list extremely short? Is God asleep on the job? Worse, is God waiting to be for us to beg and plead and get our acts together before intervening? Does God say, I won't heal until you've said 87 more prayers? Huh. See, that's not how God works. And this doesn't mean it's wrong to play God, uh, pray, God, heal my mom, heal my dad, heal my spouse, my child, or pray something like, God, give me strength, give them strength. God, if it's your will, please help them, help me. Those things aren't wrong, but they does, it doesn't mean that God is going to answer it. And you think of this, if you're a parent, you're a father, you're a mother in this room this morning, if your child, if your 14-year-old teenager asked and said to you, yeah, can, can you give me a, a Corvette for my birthday? Chances are you're probably going to say no, I would hope. 
because you know at that moment in time, in the stage of life that they're in, in everything that they can do and are responsible for, that's not what they need. If your little four-year-old child was to say, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, tonight before I go to bed, can you, can you get me a Red Bull? <laughs> You'd say, go to bed. What, what, what do you, what, get, get out of here. You, you, they don't give you wings. You go to, go to bed. They don't go to bed. Because you know as a parent, in this stage of life, in what they need and what they, what they, what they don't need, you understand that, that there's some things they're going to ask for. That's not according to your will. It's not in their best interest, even though they don't know it. And it's our, the same with our Heavenly Father. There are things we are going to ask for in this life and that we will expect from God. And He's going to say no. Why? Because He's a Father that knows better than we do. He's going to say there's some things in your stage of life that, that you don't need right now. He knows better. He's the Father. And you know what? When God says no to something that we pray to Him about, we should thank Him for that because He knows better than we do. He's a loving Father. See, believers will produce, uh, reproduce, and thereby glorify the Father. And, and, and there's something I, I want to circle back to here. Prayer isn't always about what we are going to get or not get from God. See, the greatest gift, the greatest gift realized in prayer is His presence. Your, your, your four-year-old child might ask for a Red Bull. You tell him no. Your 14-year-old child might ask for a Corvette. You tell him no. You know what they really need? More than that Corvette, more than that Red Bull? You. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. You know what we need more than the things we're asking for? Him. See, that's what we need. Believers will reproduce and thereby glorify the Father. Herein, John 15, 8, is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So God calls us to bear fruit. Say, so don't stay stagnant. Don't stay mediocre. Don't stay apathetic. Grow, bear fruit. Just as our strawberry plant is bearing fruit, that's how you know it's a healthy plant. It's bearing fruit. One of the great fruits of a Christian is other Christians. If that strawberry plant started producing, I don't know, peaches, you would say, well, that's not what I want this strawberry plant to produce. I want my strawberry plant to produce strawberries. The greatest fruit that a Christian can bear is the fruit of other Christians. This is what you would expect. If you buy an orange tree, you want oranges. If you buy a lemon tree, you want lemons. If you buy a pomegranate tree, you want pomegranates. If you are a believer, you produce other believers. This is how fruit works. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm timid. I'm an introvert. God wants us to bear much fruit. And one of the greatest joys we can have in this life is sharing the gospel of Jesus with those who will listen. So believers will bear fruit. Believers will reproduce. Believers will demonstrate love. John chapter 15, Jesus says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In Acts, uh, in Acts 17, Paul spends a short time in Thessalonica on his missionary journey. When the Jewish elders found out Paul was gaining influence in this area, they wanted to capture and kill him. 
when they were looking for him, they made this accusation. Acts 17, 6. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, those that have turned the world upside down are come thither also. See, God wants us to turn the world upside down by how we love people. This is the great commandment. Christianity wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the elite. It was for everyone. Rich, poor, slave, citizen, famous, infamous, black, white, tan. It paid no respect to anyone's person. The thing that separated Christians from everyone else was their ability to love all people. Jesus, Jesus said it this way, John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. Believers will love even those who are hard to love. Believers will experience joy. Jesus says this, John 15. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. See, joy can be defined as delight in God or life in spite of my circumstances. See, happiness is like the ocean. It's, it's ever-changing. It's dependent on conditions. Joy is like a well. Whatever the conditions are, it's always going to be there, and it's always available. We simply need take from it. Jesus mentions here that one of the fruits that we can enjoy as believers is joy, that it remains in us, implying that we don't always have it, but it's always available to us. Simply abide in the vine, abide in Jesus, and joy is unlocked even in the toughest of times, even in the driest of seasons, even in the darkest of days. That is where we can find joy. And that's how you can see uh, all throughout Scripture people going through extraordinary circumstances and still being able to have joy and singing. And that's why you can come to stories where Peter is in prison and he is singing praises to God in the middle of the night, even though he's shackled to a brick wall in a prison. Why? It's because he has joy, because joy is not dependent on conditions. It isn't dependent on things. Joy is simply a well we draw from as we abide in Jesus Christ. So how do we live in experiential faith versus an ethereal faith? Get to the crux of the matter. Examine your salvation. Eugene Peterson eloquently suggests that while every person deep within their being desires God, it's often an experience that awakens that need. All men and women hunger for God. The hunger is masked and misinterpreted in many ways, but it's always there. Everyone is on the verge of crying out, my Lord and my God, but the cry is drowned out by doubts or defiance, muffled by the dull ache of their routines, masked by their cozy accommodations with mediocrity. Then something happens, a word an event, a dream, and there is a push towards awareness of an incredible grace, a dazzling desire, a defiant hope, a courageous faithfulness. See, every saved person understands how the Holy Spirit has illuminated you to the truth of the gospel and that you are saved. See, Paul wrote it this way. He said, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He says, for I know whom I have believed. Do you know? Do you know? Maybe this morning God's Spirit is awakening you to your sin, your need of Jesus' righteousness, and that God allowed Jesus to be judged on your behalf. My suggestion is if you have legitimate doubts, settle it today. 
So examine your salvation. And then understand that a relationship with Jesus isn't about checking religious boxes. See, Paul spoke of a time in the last days when there would be pretenders of their faith, or at least people who never really understood the faith. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Some have created a Christianity that does not exist in the Bible, a Christianity that's about checking religious boxes. Like the saying goes, I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't chew, or run with those that do. Many people think that's the whole of Christianity. They think that as long as they don't do those things, therefore I am a good Christian. Or I dress a certain way, I say religious things, I pray good prayers in front of people, I check my box to read my Bible, I check my box to pray, I check my box to go to church, I check my box to give. And thank God you can do most of those things. But that is not what Christianity is all about. Jesus said it's all about Him and you and your relationship with Him. That's Christianity at its core who you are with Jesus, and who He is with you. That is Christianity. Fruit is what comes from that relationship. You see, our Christianity isn't just to affect our head. It's to affect our hearts, our lives, and the lives of those around us. Abide. Abide in Jesus Christ. John 15, 4 says this, abide in me. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. You know how you have an experiential faith? Abide in Jesus Christ. Spend time with Jesus Christ. Get, come into his presence. Abide in Jesus Christ. Gather your strength and satisfaction from Jesus. That is the core of the Christian life. Abide in him. Believe God for extraordinary things. Ephesians chapter 3, Now unto him that is able to do according, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And this doesn't mean God, God doesn't always give us what we want, but he still is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And when he does, we know it. And it would be hard to deconstruct for those who've seen God do great things. Let Jesus live his life through you. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see the common thread through all of these ways that we can have experiential faith. The common thread is that Jesus is the center of all of it. He's the, the branch that connects us. He is the, the center, the core of, of the Christian life. And when we're abiding in him, when we're trying to gather our life and strength from him and through him, that's when we experience him. And when we're abiding with him, he does amazing things in our life. You say, I want to experience God. Okay, abide in Jesus Christ. Get to know him. Build a relationship with him. And then from that relationship, from that place of relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll see extraordinary things. You'll see fruit come out of your life. You'll see your life bear fruit. You'll see your life touch other people around you. 
See, it's all about your relationship with Jesus Christ. There are recovery programs. One lady put it this way. There are recovery programs for people grieving the loss of a parent, a sibling, or a spouse. You can buy books on how to cope with the death of a beloved pet or work through the anguish of a miscarriage. We speak openly with one another about the bereavement that can accompany a layoff, a move, a diagnosis, or a dream deferred. But no one really teaches you how to grieve the loss of your faith. You're on your own for that. It, becomes, it became increasingly clear that my fellow Christians didn't want to listen to me or grieve with me or walk down this frightening road with me. They wanted to fix me. They wanted to wind me up like an old-fashioned toy, send me back to the fold with a painted smile on my face and tiny symbols in my hands. Let me say to you this morning, if you're here deconstructing, we're not trying to fix you. We're not trying to paint a smile on your face and send you on your way as a good little Christian. We're not trying to fix you. We're not trying to shape you in the image of Desert Hills Baptist Church. We want to point you to Jesus. That's where you experience faith. Not checking the religious boxes. Getting to know the, the vine, the branch. Getting to know Jesus Christ. We want to point you to Jesus in the process. Hopefully we can help. Let me pray for you.